Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcast 1201 on a reasonably sunny um, Sunday afternoon uh, in Lincoln. You're joined by me, your host, Bradley Alsop. I've uh, also got the pleasure of being joined uh, by a trio of uh, comrades today. I've got Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, as always. We've got the other Callum. Good afternoon, Bradley. And we've got Ollie with us as well. Good day, everyone. So, to no one's surprise, today we'll be spending a good amount of time talking about COP26. We're going to be going over all of the uh, latest developments uh, and trying to get a sense uh, between the four of us as much as we can whether we feel like there's cause for optimism in the proceedings over the last week or so. And we'll also spare a bit of time at the end to talk about uh, Westminster's hot topic, uh, which is the current corruption scandal surrounding Owen Patterson and and the government's screeching U-turn after a a very uh, unpopular parliamentary vote. But we'll come on to that towards the end. So, guys, COP26, uh, 26th Conference of the Parties, meeting in Glasgow this week. Uh, a number of world leaders have, have been there. Obviously, Boris opened it with his usual... Um, I don't know if any of you caught the speech, but he opened it with his usual slapstick style with jokes about James Bond um, and all the rest of it. And obviously, we've got other world leaders um, such as uh, Modi and Joe Biden, but also notable absences um, from world leaders from China and Russia um, and Saudi Arabia, I think, as well. There's been some progress. I don't think it's. I don't think it'd be fair to deny that. Uh, we've got agreements reached by uh, not all countries, but um, I think for deforestation to a pledge to try and end deforestation by 2030, I think it is. Uh, I think it's been signed up to by more than 100 countries. Uh, we've got pledges on coal as well. That's been reached by 40 countries, uh, including some big hitters like Canada um, and Poland. Um, that that is a pledge to phase out coal use by 2030. Although, I think some of the developing countries that have signed up for it um, have have pledged a, a slightly later date than that. Um, but that, that's understandable given the need for developing countries to have time to develop that developed countries have already had. Um, so uh, you know, and and obviously the, there's continuing discussions around um, aid that that country that developing countries should get. I think that's been a sticking point so far. I think. Nine years ago in Copenhagen, it was um, it was pledged 100 billion for developing countries, which on its own is, is, isn't enough anyway. But uh, countries have struggled to to stump up the cash for that um, over the last nine years as it is. I think 80 billion has, has been recouped, but but there's still a, a 20 billion outstanding. Um, we've had some of the pledges from countries. So uh, India has now pledged uh, net zero by 2070. Um, now, obviously, 2070 is far too late, uh, but it is the first time we've seen a net zero pledge from India. So some are seeing that as signs of good progress as well. Um, and we've had an agreement on methane. So a more, uh, according to the BBC site, more than 100 countries have joined um, uh, a pledge around methane, um, cutting emissions by 30% by 2030, um, the BBC tells me. Um, but as the BBC points out, big emitters such as China, Russia and India um, are not involved um, in that pledge as well. So uh, my very quick superficial analysis is that it's a bit of a mixed bag and there's maybe uh, hope, hope for optimism in some places. And there's clearly been movement in the right direction on a number of issues, but we're, we're still a long way off solving the climate crisis. But I'm going to I'm going to come to Callum Roper first to see if uh, you agree with that very quick and brief analysis. Yeah, I, I would agree with that analysis in that there, there certainly is some positives to take out of COP. I think that bringing certain countries that potentially haven't been keen to discuss the climate crisis and the action that they've got to take um, to, to avert the, the damage that we're doing uh, or the potential damage that is going to come down the line, um, that, that's, a, that's a great positive. And, and Commitments on coal and commitments on methane and things like this are fantastic. But I think you're right in saying that there's a complete lack of, um, I suppose, agreement or consensus on how do we tackle the um, issue of, of the of the developed countries essentially being able to transition much faster because they have the financial 
resources to do so. They have the um, they have the institutions to do so. They have the um, the systems in place in order to transition their economy rapidly. Whereas less developed countries, as we've seen before, as you touched on, Bradley, um, they don't have those resources. So we've either got to let them um, try and go it alone, which is going to be a disaster for the for the world. They they simply cannot transition quick enough without the support of developed countries. And we, when we say developed countries, we're talking about countries that can afford to support um, uh, these developing countries. So the United States, we're talking about um, the Western, Western states. So we've got Canada, we've got Great Britain, we've got France, Germany, you know, very advanced states um, that are starting to get there when it comes to their transition, but they can certainly do it a lot quicker. But developed states, they're not there. So we need financial support, but we also need intellectual support. So how are we going to inter- essentially um, implement the, the new technologies? Because there's a variety of different climates and a variety of different um I suppose, cultures that you have to recognise, so many different uh, approaches around the world. Not every country is like Great Britain, where, you know, already we're seeing plenty of people uh, being able to afford a, an electric car. Um, it's certainly not reachable to the mass population, but more and more we're seeing electric cars. That's something that you can't achieve in India, where so many people b- live below the poverty line where so many people working agriculture um, and they're relying on very old and very aged uh, tractors and, and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of facets that we have to consider here. But ultimately, I think what is most disappointing is that we, we do have some of these big players missing from the conversations. I think that um, in terms of some of its actions on, on the climate crisis, China has been one of the most positive states in terms of its implementation of of green energy and, and its commitments to decarbonizing its economy, but then it doesn't show up to COP. And I can appreciate that so the narrative around it has been a lot of, I suppose, China bashing, um, but we do need them at the table and we do need their input because as, as one of the largest polluters, um, as one of the biggest economies in the world um, that is that is growing to a point now where eventually it will surpass the US, we need to have them at the very top of the table and we need them to be uh, not just committing with actions internally but committing with money and aid to these developing countries as i said before so um it it is really a case of do we say it's a a glass half full or a glass half empty um with with cop so far um but what i really hope is that this is certainly i think for people's imagination going forward i think this has really brought it to the fore um, it's about maintaining that focus now going forward, because the next, really, the next decade up until twenty thirty is is crunch point. That 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 is it. That is the the simple fact that we have to consider, um, and whether we decide to save the planet and prevent uh, climate change further than it already is um, is is really in our hands now, and we've got to make that decision. Yeah, and I, I think. Uh, Updating the uh, the stats for some of the, the new pledges, the fresh things that are coming through in COP26, one set of researchers have reached a, a, an estimate that I think that's now been published um, will bring us to about 1.9 degrees of warming. Now, I, I think the, 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 the rough estimate from previous, the pledges that had been brought in, in Paris um, w- was about 2.7 degrees of warming. So that's, you know, 0.8 degrees less warming w- will obviously make an enormous difference um, to, to the planet and to people's lives. And bear in mind that that is just one, uh, you know, one estimate from one set of researchers. And of course, it assumes in that model that um, world leaders and, and governments and, and all of our actors will actually do all the things they've pledged to do. Because of course we, we've not really seen any, you know, we're, we're very far away from all these things happening. We're actually just at the stage where they're, they're being pledged and countries saying we will do these things. Um, Callum, what what do you reckon? Would one point nine degrees um, an acceptable outcome? Would that would that be a, a victory? Um, and do and do you think it's likely we'll we'll get that, or do you think we'll still overshoot that? Well, I'm not a scientist, so I couldn't give a scientific answer to it. Um, I understand there's a lot of disappointment about that target being proclaimed, um, although of course it's better than what was there before. Um, I, 
notes the absence of China, I think that that is um, reminiscent in a way of the United States absence from the League of Nations. I worry that it's going to go the same way um, because while countries like that are absent from these sorts of assemblies, uh, ultimately they cannot achieve their full purpose. And um, so I, given that the pattern for the last 20 years, where we've been really seriously talking about climate change, has been for us to overshoot our targets, uh, I'm sceptical as to whether these targets will actually be hit. Many nations are still subsidising uh, fossil fuels. Uh, we are still uh, we're still pursuing things like carbon capture and uh, so-called clean gas. So I can't say that I'm particularly particularly optimistic after uh, COP26. Uh, that those targets which have been set will be hit and also that they are adequate. Um, however, as we know, the narrative is changing. So perhaps uh, by the time we come to uh, next year's conference, further progress will have been made. Uh, perhaps it will require some natural disasters uh, to, uh, to, to make that point. Uh, certainly, I think, continued protest. Um, and direct action uh, and political action as well uh, is necessary to push it uh, further in, in the right direction. But as it stands, I think the outcome from this conference uh, is not adequate for um, if we want to uh, preserve our species on this planet. Yeah, and I mean... Sorry for a negative conclusion. Sorry, yeah, and no, it's fine. And, you know, 1.9 degrees of warming... So, so sliver away from two and I think you know and again as, as you did I, I'll stress that I'm not a climate scientist but for, from my understanding and my reading of, of, of what's out there um there, there's all sorts of feedback mechanisms that bake in more warming that I think that the more the more we we research them and the, and the more we find out about them that they are, the scarier it seems to get in terms of you know if you look at um the, the warming and acidification of oceans, the um, melting of polar ice caps and it, uh, deforestation, all, all these sorts of things. Um, you know, it, and actually, apparently, a, a more carbon-rich atmosphere ca causes trees uh, to the, their leaves to thicken and, and grow more. So that actually, when they get to that state, they actually absorb less carbon. So there's all these sorts of feedback mechanisms, and you know, we really touch the tip of the iceberg, really, in figuring out excuse the pun, but in figuring out what exactly uh, the impacts of climate change and runaway climate change are going to be. So I, I think even if th this this estimate by researchers is correct and, and 1.9, that's where we get to with all these pledges, I still think there's probably going to be some nasty feedback surprises that will probably tip us over to two degrees. Um, so so I think in reality, we're, we're probably looking at two degrees, assuming that we're looking at at least two degrees, assuming that all the governments do all the things they've pledged that they will do um, so far, which is obviously a, an enormous big if as well. Um, and, you know, let, let's be frank about it. Two degrees of warming is a death sentence for hundreds of millions of people um, over the course of this century. And hundreds, hundreds of millions will die that didn't need to die um, as a result of climate change. Um, if, if two degrees is what is what we hit, uh, we'll see devastation of ecosystems. We'll see enormous issues with, uh, climate conflicts, uh, rising food prices, uh, water shortages, you know, it, it damage to infrastructure, uh, loss of coastal towns and cities, you know, two degrees of warming, it, it, it's enormous devastation, you know, on a scale that doesn't really have any comparison in human history. So on that on that note, Ollie, uh, I, I'm interested what you think in terms of the UK. Uh, I, I'm interested in your views on on whether you think this 1.9 um, degrees warming is, is something we can herald as a victory, um, but also what you think the UK's role has been. Obviously, we're the host nation for a COP. Has uh, has Boris put on a, a a good face to the world, both in terms of how we've hosted COP, but also our own action on climate here in the UK.
I think he's put on a good face, but I think that's just um, in his character, really, um, to be all, all kind of jolly uh, and optimistic and making jokes. Uh, but it, it is really scary, as you pointed out. And I think anything um, short of the warming that's already scheduled now is is, is really scary for the future. Um, and it's even scarier when you think about uh, we're experiencing the the emissions that um, were released 20 years ago into the atmosphere. There's like a, a time lag. So in 20 years, that will affect the, the emissions that are released today will affect the, the atmosphere and the environment, um, you know, in, in that same way. And that's that's really scary to think about. But I think it's um, it's not so good to be a kind of defeatist about that. Um, there's plenty of people which are saying like, oh, well, what can we do now? Like we've already released like, what is it? 90% of our carbon budget, uh, which we're allowed, we, we can release before it's uh, two degrees of warming. Um, I don't think that's a very helpful mentality to have. Um, in terms of, yeah, I, I don't think anything uh, like 1.9 is not a success. I think every degree of warming extra is something that, uh, you know, we, we have to uh, mitigate and we have to avoid um, because that's just how it works. It's not just um, we hit 1.5 degrees and then that's it. That's like, um, you know, a, a massive amount of the, the global south. It's it's eventual. It's gradual. It's a, it's a really slippery slope. Uh, but what I will say is it's quite scary um, learning about the, the tipping points uh, of the world, like the Arctic sea ice, for example, um, and once we we kind of cross these lines, they are we can't get them back. That's it. Um, and they will uh, have you know really catastrophic uh, like a domino effect um, for the for the rest of the world. And that that's scary to think about. Um, so yeah, you know, one point five isn't a success in my opinion. I think we should be um, you know completely coming away from everything uh, emissions wise. Um, reducing our consumption on everything uh, and anything short of um, the social change that we had for 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 uh, COVID-19, the COVID-19 panic, pandemic when it hit is um, is not enough. Um, and then 1.9, 1, 1. I think, obviously, as you've said, it will be catastrophic uh, and massive amounts of, um, you know, people's lives, hundreds of millions of people will, uh, you know, half half the world could potentially be uninhabitable and which has massive um, social economic polit- uh, consequences so it, it's just uh, really scary to think think about and then you think you've got <laughs> Boris Johnson the bloody clown that he is um, you know presenting to the rest of the world uh, making jokes about it um, I, I don't think it's enough um, at the moment I think I, I quite quite share uh, Greta Thunberg's um, philosophy about it being a, a global north uh, greenwashing festival I think that's 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 kind of what it is and that's what the last 26 of these have been um you know nothing happened really of of note after the 1992 uh, rio climate summit um and i think it's been kind of similar ever since and we're just we're not getting the the scale of the crisis right we can't even get the 100 billion um that we committed to in was it 2009 um we can't even get that right um and that's that's completely outdated and not enough you know, we should be updating these uh, pledges every year, not every five years. So I think there's a lot that needs to happen. Um, and I don't think uh, in any way um, twenty, uh, sorry, COP26 is, is a success at the moment. Um, I think it will help um, people's understanding of it. And pot- potentially that's the the most, um, you know, effective way to make that that necessary social change. Um, to to make people informed um, and to to protest that this and say that it's not enough as they've been doing in in Glasgow and and what happened yesterday in in the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really complex issue and there's lots to think about. Um, and sorry to be a bit negative about it, but um, I think that's just what it is in my in my eyes. Yeah. Yes. I I think earlier I said. It- it was nine years ago, but you're quite right. It's twelve years ago. It's two thousand nine, Copenhagen. The the commitment to hundred billion to to help developing countries transition um, was pledged, and obviously the, not all the money's there yet. And it, this leads me nicely onto what I'm going to throw open to to any of you. Really, is um, what what specifically do you, do we think is missing at the moment in terms of the ambition of world leaders? What what are we not seeing that we need to be seeing at, at COP twenty six? 
Um, I, I can get this started. I, I think the hundred billion is a very obvious start. You know, tw- twenty billion is what the wrangling is, has been over for for some time now. Twenty billion in you know, forget the US's economy or China's economy. It, even in the scale of the UK economy, twenty billion is nothing really. Uh, you see the resources that have been marshaled around COVID over the last eighteen months. Twenty billion is a drop in the ocean of the world economy. Why? Why when the the, the consequences of climate change are so catastrophic? You know, estimates are putting it in the the trend. I think Modi actually said, you know, we need to be talking in we don't need to be talking in terms of hundreds of billions anymore. We need to be talking in terms of trillions. That's what the cost of, of climate change is going to be. And and you know, at a, a conference now where people are saying, you know, it, the the message seems to be that the conversation has changed and that world leaders get it. But if they're still wrangling over twenty billion, which is a drop in the ocean, have they really got it at that point? Do, have they really comprehended what what what's going on here? Um, and you know, a hundred billion itself is not nearly enough. When it was pledged in two thousand nine, it wasn't nearly enough. Um, and yet, we, we we can't even sump up that over, over a dozen years. Um, so clearly, the, the aid and obviously, and obviously, you know, there's a strong moral calculation here that the countries that have historically emitted the most, the, the US, the UK, um, other developed nations, we and and at the same time ravaged developing countries and and you know uh along with governments but also western corporations have um you know debilitated the development of various countries throughout the world and and grown rich off it um you know we we have a strong moral responsibility to provide and help, help provide the infrastructure and the resources that those countries will need to transition far far quicker than we have yeah, we, we, we have dragged, the reason we're in this mess is that we have dragged our feet and we have gone through periods of high consumption, high fossil fuel usage for far too long. And the planet simply can't sustain that these developing countries go through that as well. And um, so, you know, there's a strong moral responsibility for developed countries that have caused this crisis to help those in the global south. Um, but, but they're quibbling over 20 billion, which is, which is a drop in the ocean, really. Callum, what else is missing? Uh, Callum Roper, what else is missing from COP? Well, first and foremost, it's it's urgency. I, I don't actually sense much urgency amongst many people that I've seen, certainly in terms of delegates from countries. I, I don't see much uh, urgency at all. And we need that urgency because, uh, you know, 2070 is, is, yes, a first commitment from India, but it's nowhere near good enough. We, do we seriously think that that's the best that they can do, one of the fastest growing economies in the world? And I appreciate that they have a, a challenging set of circumstances. They're trying to bring people out of poverty and raise the standard of living there at the same time. Um, but is that really the best they can do? 2070, we're saying 50 years, 50 years of um, continued uh, carbon, or at least carbon positive, if you like, into the into the uh, atmosphere. Uh, that's not good enough. And then I, I think, secondly, really, nobody, um, again, nobody in the mainstream, if you like, has actually really got to the root of the issue here, and that is the uh, globalised neoliberal attitude and system that we live in at the moment. It's a system of exploitation of people and the environment. It relies on, um, essentially, if I want something uh, very much indeed, I live in a Western country and I will get it, essentially, and I can get it ordered and it will come from China. Um, It will be made in highly polluting factories. It will then be shipped um, either by air or by sea, again, very polluting. Um, And then it will be driven in a lorry to to a distribution warehouse. And then potentially from that warehouse, it will then go to a shop in another lorry. And then I can, uh, if I drove, I would then drive to that, uh, drive to that shop and pick it up, or I'll get it delivered by uh, Amazon or some other delivery company like that. Again, using fossil fuels. The whole process that we live in at the moment, the whole society that we've built, certainly in in, in westernised uh, countries, is one of consumption, but no measures at all to control that consumption. It's become excessive um, and and absolutely people should enjoy luxury in life and people should enjoy um, and and get what they want Um, but we must live sustainably and there's currently no agenda to really um, make things sustainable so why aren't we talking about ensuring that countries are able to um, essentially uh, grow and, and, and produce food 
on a local basis, so whether that be regionally, uh, as opposed to having to ship in things from across the world. Again, this is uh, an excess that we, we live in. And if we're going to deal with the climate crisis, we've got to recognise that if we're going to have to start cutting back some of these excesses. I'm not saying that we should all be living on rice and beans for the rest of time. What I'm saying is that there are ways around this, but we've got to look at the system that's underpinning that entire uh, consumerist attitude that we have. Um, again, uh, if, if you want the cutting edge green technology for your house, for your car, for, uh, uh, well, even uh, even uh, green laptops where you want to uh, uh, essentially change out the parts, that's extremely expensive as well. That's a thousand pounds. Nobody can afford that. So we've got the ideas, we've got the technology, but again, it's a consumerist thing. Actually, it should be something that everyone should be entitled to. And if you can't afford to get to that point, then it should be subsidized and you should be helped to get to that point because ultimately it's for the greater good. And I think that the uh, if, if we're going to be talking really selfishly here and talking about um, the, the, the bigger picture and surviving uh, and having a comfortable life for, for the rest of uh, the lives that we have here and, and then our subsequent uh, generations below us, then actually saving the planet and making a few sacrifices and putting our money where our mouth is seriously. And we are talking trillions. And I think that, you know, we're talking tens of trillions at least. So let's start putting our money where our mouth is. Let's start talking about the the underpinning issues, the system, the systemic issues that we have. And uh, let's start by actually making a positive change and getting some urgency here. Because I, as I say, I don't sense any urgency whatsoever. Ollie, what what else is missing from COP twenty six? Well. Um... After everything you've said, uh, Bradley and, and Callum as well, um, I, I think they're really important points. I think, you know, there's just the lack of, the complete lack of political will. Um, and I think we're still thinking about this wrong in, in a wrong way, especially any of the the narrative and any of the media that I've seen, um, the mainstream media especially, is, is, is the idea that uh, in the current system that growth can be green um, I just, it can't, there's no such thing as green growth and wanting to transition to a green economy where there is still growth um, at the moment, is just not possible. Um, and, you know, the root, the root cause of this problem, it's, you know, the, the finite growth in a, in a finite, sorry, sorry, the infinite growth in a finite system that we have to quote uh, George Mombayer. Um, and I think that's, that's the crux of it really. Um, as as Callum says, uh, we we live in such a, a you know a consumerist society, um, and we just need to completely change the way we uh, we think about uh, you know what we consume um, and what we eat and the, you know the items we use um, and transition into you know more circular economies where it's based on uh, local sustainable models, as, as Callum rightly said. Um, and I think that's completely missing from the official, um, you know, global narrative around climate at the moment, in my opinion. Um, but there, you know, this just the, the idea is that a hundred billion is, is sufficient um, is, is a massive, you know, a massive problem at the moment. Because um, as as you've rightly pointed out, we need tens of trillions uh, at least. Um, I do feel a little bit differently about what was said about China earlier on. Um, there's a really good article on Navarra Media um, called uh, "Is China the World's Worst Climate Culprit?" written by Aaron Bastani, um, and really it, it, it takes you through how they actually compare um, to Western societies, and it's quite eye-opening how how far they've uh, gone. Um, obviously, I'm aware that they're the uh, the biggest emitter of coal at the moment in the world, um, but they're also uh, their, their green credentials in the last few years years of, of massively shot up um, with massive investment in uh, wind and, and uh, wind energy and, and solar energy and hydro energy as well. Uh, the reforestation um, scheme has um, increased the, the land coverage of, of forests. I think it was t from 12% to uh, 20, around 24% uh, since 1978, which is huge uh, for such a big country as China. Um, so you know they are obviously they're the biggest polluter, but they've got um, a lot 
they're in a, in a almost different league um, as as the Western world at the moment, and that's the kind of um, investment that that we're missing um, that we could be doing, and we could rightly be be doing uh, after such a, a shock to the global economy uh, from COVID. You know, you know, all this narrative about um, building back better. Um, well, it could be done. It's it's a massive opportunity to to build back better. You know, in a, in a, an eco friendly way. Um, and a carbon neutral way as well. So, you know, there's lots of things missing from the the official, um, you know, lines on, on climate. My worry is that it's going to take a massive um, environmental and, and ecological disaster, um, which, you know, they're already happening, but they're just not that visible yet. Um, potentially something which displaces millions of people um, for, for us all to wake up. Um, and until we're affected by by something in that way, I don't think uh, anything we do is going to be anywhere near the necessary change, unfortunately. So we're going to move on to our second story um, of the day. Uh, and this is uh, Owen Patterson has, has been in trouble uh, recently around um, claims of corruption. So uh, there was a, there's an independent process. There's a, there's a committee that, that deals with this issue in Parliament um, and, th- and they ruled that he should, I think it would be suspended for 30 days from Parliament, which is quite a minor, uh, quite a minor uh, punishment for, for claims of uh, corruption. Um, and it was because he is paid, now I'm going to, because re- I don't want to get sued, I'm going to read this off the BBC website rather than uh, incorrectly make any claims about Owen Patterson. Um, so he was basically the, the Commissioner for Parliamentary Standards, um, accused him of breaking the rule, lobbying rules for MPs. Um, in, a se- in essence, he um, made representations um, on behalf of companies. Um, he, he met officials from the Food Standards Agency and ministers at the Department for International Development a number of times. Um, he is paid quite a lot of money um, by uh, for by Randox um, and Linz County Foods, um, and and these are the companies. It's found that he he made these um, overtures to 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 uh, members of Parliament um, for to ministers. So it, in essence, he's getting paid an awful lot of money. I think one of them is paying him over a hundred grand a year um, for. Not, not a huge amount of work. He's certainly not working full-time for me, as you imagine, as an MP. Uh, he's getting paid enormous amounts of money for them. Uh, and he is then uh, having discussions, um, you know, that, that potentially influence uh, policy or, or regulation or, or various uh, bits of government work that could potentially benefit um, these companies. So ov- obviously not great. Um, he, he received a, a suspension from Parliament of 30 days, um, and then uh, the government decides to, I think this has to be the process that it has to be approved by, by the Commons. Um, and the, the government whipped uh, their MPs to vote, to, to vote against that. Not only that, but to, to overhaul um, the, the, the process in which he received this suspension. That passed, that it was outrage from, from opposition MPs and actually even some within, within the government's own ranks. But it did pass. Um, but now, after a huge government, uh, a huge public outcry, and, and a number of, of um, politicians um, decrying this move of corruption, uh, the government has had a screeching U-turn, um, and Owen Patterson has indeed actually resigned um, as MP. So, Callum Watt, what do you what do you make of all this? Is is this a sign of yet more corruption within Boris Johnson's party? It's a really interesting case, Bradley, because we know this sort of stuff goes on all the time. We've known it goes on um, for years. I think it was uh, Zara Sultana who talked about how in Parliament there are parts of the estate where there are restaurants and cafes set aside for MPs to meet with lobbyists where there are no cameras allowed. So it's a... I think it's quite uh, ubiquitous, this sort of activity in Parliament these days, uh, possibly ever, to be fair. Um, and that's key to this story, I think, because what the, okay, Owen Patterson got caught, basically, 
doing something which is quite common, which is uh, essentially taking a, an enormous salary for not much actual work, but for basically giving those companies access to government. That's what he was um, alleged to have done. And he went before a parliamentary standards committee and was held to account for it. Very, very easy then, therefore, for uh, the Conservative Party to turn around and say, well, we, if, if MPs are going to be investigated and punished for taking part in this sort of activity, that is then a direct threat to their livelihoods. This is their main source of income, not their MP salaries. Their MP salaries are quite generous, of course. I think it's £83,000 a year. But in the case of Owen Patterson, he was earning in excess of £100,000 a year um, just by doing these uh, slightly shady lobbying activities. So this was an act of self-preservation on behalf of the Conservative Party. Uh, on behalf of uh, Boris Johnson in particular. And I do find it notable that in the last few days there has been an attempt to try and shift the blame onto Whip's office, which is completely absurd because the Whip's office uh, only acts on behalf of the orders of the Prime Minister, so it stops with Boris Johnson. I understand there were some Tory MPs who were actually reluctant to vote for the uh, the uh, uh, rule changes which would have protected uh, Owen Patterson. So clearly there are, you know, this this the thing about many Tories, many of them are simply uh, what they would call traditionalists. And they believe in the, the idea of the British constitution and so on, and perhaps weren't willing uh, to uh, indulge uh, their colleagues' uh, corruption and, and, and cover for it, but they were, directly threatened. And of course, this is a, a new model of government, uh, new for in the modern era. In the past, it would have been much more common, I think, pre the Second World War. But this government is almost quite blatant uh, in saying to constituencies which vote Conservative, if you vote Conservative, we will pump more money into your constituency. That is their bribe, if you like, to the electorate. And so Boris Johnson, via the Whip's office, uh, said to many of those MPs, if you don't vote for uh, this uh, rule change, then we might cut off the tap to your constituency. So there are several layers, I would argue, of uh, corruption here, not only the actions of uh, Owen Patterson himself, uh, but then, of course, the act of self-preservation on behalf of Boris Johnson and corrupt Tory MPs, and then using an, an already slightly dodgy uh, electoral practice, which is to say you know, bribing the electorate um, and, and threatening to take that away from certain Tory MPs to ensure that they voted for the rule change. And uh, it was, uh, I think it's been speculated that part of it might have been to uh, take some of the teeth away from the uh, regulatory committees. Uh, obviously, Boris Johnson has been uh, accused of uh, taking sort of uh, bribes by proxy, if you like, uh, through the renovation of his Downing Street flat. And uh, there may be other things as well that we don't know about. Uh, and so this was a, an attempt to defang uh, those committees. Uh, I think that's plausible. Uh, if not proven. Um, but uh, it was ultimately, of course, defeated by uh, all of the opposition parties, Labour, the SNP uh, and others, refusing to um, participate in the new regulatory committee which would have placed it, uh, which is, uh, does demonstrate that there is still some power uh, in Parliament, doesn't it, to hold the executive to account in this way, which is uh, reassuring. Uh, and it's uh, refreshing in a way because it has blown open the whole issue of uh, corruption. I, I will call it corruption because that's what it is uh, in at the height, height of our government. Uh, it's brought it very much into the fore, uh, despite the uh, initial 
portrayal of the issue by uh, lobby journalists as being uh, a Westminster uh, anorak story, if you like, obsessive stories, something the public wouldn't care or particularly be interested in. Actually, this is uh, very much cutting through to people. Uh, and I think that that uh, can only be a good thing going forwards. Uh, so I think, uh, and uh, the outcome hopefully will be uh, perhaps even a, a tightening of, of the regulations uh, regarding corruption in Parliament. And um, we saw big changes to the way uh, MPs behave uh, after the expenses scandal. I think this is the next big watershed uh, and uh, also potentially very damaging for the Prime Minister. But uh, given his uh, ability to survive so far, uh, I think that remains to be seen. But certainly, uh, very, very, very significant. Um, and uh, and uh, of course, he is. Uh, of course, he is right to resign. He may well not be the last. Yeah, uh, Callum Roper. What, what do you What do you make of all this? And uh, where Where's the Labour Party been on all of this? What's uh, What's Keir's stance been? Well, I mean, obviously, as Callum came out there and, and told us that the Labour Party was joined with, with other opposition parties in um, refusing to entertain the idea that this uh, new system was in any way fair or would deal with uh, uh, bad practices that we see amongst our, our MPs. Um, that's great. Uh, I, I think he uh, has come out. Um, obviously, we're recording on a Sunday, therefore you get all the uh, Sunday morning politics shows. I think he was doing interviews and doing the rounds there. Um, again, saying that there, there is no space for, for corruption in, in our system, in our parliamentary system. I have seen some criticisms of him saying that he needs to be a lot stronger in his language. Um, and, and I, for one, would certainly come out and say that this uh, is, is not welcome at all. Our uh, parliamentary system, our democracy should have no space for any corruption uh, or sleaze of any sort. I think that um, this could be that, that watershed moment, really, um, against corruption. We all know it, it goes on. Um, everyone sort of harks back to uh, the expenses scandal or the uh, or the major government in the in the nineties, and, and when we talk about things like corruption and. Uh, MPs trying to line their pockets while they're doing a, a what is a, a role for the public. It's public service. It's not a, I don't think that this is something that um, people sometimes appreciate is that actually being an MP shouldn't be something that's seen as an opportunity to make a, make a pretty dime and, and again, line your pockets and um, build up your own personal wealth. But I think that it's an opportunity to serve the community in which you find yourself living in or the community that you love. Um, and I, I think it's disgraceful that um, a number of MPs, and it's not just Conservative MPs, uh, we have seen Labour MPs in the past doing uh, looking to line their pockets in the expenses scandal. So it's not, I think it's a problem in politics. It's not a party political issue, but the, the Tories are turning it into that because they're looking to cover each other's backs um, I would expect that if we had an incident like this in, in the Labour Party, that, that that person would be gone. They'll be out the door straight away. I don't think membership will have it. I don't think the public will have it. And I certainly hope the leadership would not have it. Um, whereas we have this uh, morally bankrupt Tory leadership at the moment that has no sense of, of what is right and wrong. The only thing that is right is uh, profit for themselves and their chums. Uh, and, and things that are wrong, uh, feeding school children, uh, keeping taxes low for, for low-wage people, things like that. that. That's stuff that they can't cannot bring themselves to do. But any opportunity to turn a profit, well, they're there straight away, you know. We talk about a, a society where uh, nobody should have to work two jobs. Um, we have at the bottom end of the spectrum, we have people that out of necessity because one job won't pay them enough. They have to work two, three, four jobs uh, multiple hours and almost seven days a week in many cases. And yet the other end of the spectrum, we have these uh, these MPs that are looking to line their pockets, looking to exploit the power that they've been trusted with by their constituents. And I, I think it's time that actually this, this changes. And, uh, and I feel that we might see some positive changes over the next uh, few years on the back of this. This is in the public eye now. I think everyone's talking about it. Everyone's aware of it.
but now certainly for the Labour Party to return to the Labour Party, I think it's now that we take a, a stand, being being the party, take a stand and say that we are the party of anti-corruption, we are the party that is going to, um, in many senses, um, restore our, our democracy to what, what many of us hold it up to be, which is a, a fair and level playing field and something that is a public service and not an opportunity to profit. Yeah, uh, Ollie, I'm going to come to you. I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, if this episode highlights anything that needs to change in the rules, because, of course, um, j- just being employed by a company, you know, the, the fact that Owen Patson uh, earns a hundred grand from you know from one of these companies, in and of itself, is not actually against the rules. That MPs can and often do have second, third, fourth jobs, uh, you know, for for for, vari- for various things and for various companies. That's perfectly within within the rules. That you know, Owen Patterson is in trouble this time because, according um, to the report from the BBC, he, he got in trouble because he didn't didn't declare a conflict of interest in certain meetings. He, he used parliamentary stationery, I think is the phrasing. Don't know what that, that means exactly um, for for bits to do with his his lobbying to to do with connected to his work with these companies, um, and, and obviously you know met, met ministers on uh, on behalf of these companies. Um, is is the claims that he he is actually claiming that he's he's amounted to what he did to almost whistleblowing. He said he said he something to, to do with contaminated milk. He was warning them about and things like that. So he he is very much you know in the, of the opinion that he that he what he did was was morally correct and, and that you know it wasn't a a private gain sort of um, calculation. But anyway, the, so the reason he's in trouble is for those things. He's not in trouble because um because he was had a job with these companies. That's perfectly within the rules. Um. What do you think of that, Ollie? Do you think the rules need to change? Should MPs be able to have second, third, fourth jobs um, where they earn these large amounts of money from from different companies? No, no, I just I don't objectively. Um, I think that being an MP is a full time job. I think that um, you don't need uh, exterior kind of income when you're what is it eighty grand they get for being a member of parliament. Um, that should be enough for absolutely anybody. Um, I think that, you know, this has long been what uh, socialists have been calling for in the Labour Party. Uh, it was part of the uh, of one of Corbyn's um, manifestos to ban second jobs on MPs. And I think it's, uh, it's about time it happened, really. Um, it would just completely avoid this kind of scenario. Um, and what he was going to get in the first place, anyway, uh, it was only a 30-day suspension, and that's what they were trying to protect him from. Um, which just which shows the level of um, of contempt and and how they think they can just get away with anything and they're not accountable to anybody. Um, and it, it it yeah it's it's ridiculous I think it is. Um, but you know how many more um, corruption uh, or expenses or or whatever scandals can can they take? Um, it's 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 getting to the stage now. Like everybody already knows that. Um, um, you know, a lot of politicians are in that sense corrupt. Um, and it, it's something which I think is disenfranchised, you know, a lot of the electorate. Um, and, you know, that might be the reason why they, they don't vote, because uh, why should they take politics seriously when, um, you know, there's completely uh, people in power that are just, just don't have their interests at heart and are only there to uh, to make a quick book or, or lobby for their industry or something like that. Um and I, I really think it's a big problem, and um, it's you're right to say it's not just um, it's just just the Tories. Um, it's it's I think it's an all all uh, encompassing political problem really. Um, and yeah, we should be taking steps to uh, to change this, but I'm I'm not sure that will ever happen, especially with the Tories in government, because um, you know as Dennis Skinner said, they're mostly just crooks. I think that's uh, that's quite a good surmise, really. Yeah, and I, I do think these sorts of instances are are worrying because obviously there are uh, a corruption of the democratic process, but I think they also undermine public trust in MPs. And I think it was Callum earlier that mentioned the um, the, the comments at the start of this saga as it was sort of breaking as a story of, of Laura Coonsberg you know, sort of suggesting that it was a bit of a Westminster bu- bubble sort of story and that there probably wouldn't be much wider interest. 
Um, which, which is really, if you think about it, re- really poor political judgment from someone whose job that is. Because, you know, one of the biggest stories, one of the biggest political stories probably over the last 20 years was the Westminster expenses scandal and how that, you know, that, that and that's, we saw recently, you know, around the discussions around the um, tragic death of an MP recently, um, discussions about how this anti-MP, anti-politician sentiment has grown and, you know, figures such as Diane Abbott have pinpointed the expenses scandal as, as part of that process, amongst other things. So, you know, fantastically poor judgment from uh, the BBC's top reporters to suggest that this wouldn't be an issue that would cut through because it clearly has and v- recent political history would show you that, that the, you know, the expenses sandal re- really pissed people off and rightly so um, so yeah so I, I do worry as well about p- potentially the, the longer term damage this does not 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 just the immediate damage to the democratic process through, through any you know sort of potential coziness with businesses um, but but about the, the damage it does to democracy in terms of how it undermines public trust in, in political institutions. Well, on that pleasant note, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. I'm sure we will follow any further developments in that story um, in future podcasts. But for now, it's a goodbye from me and it's a goodbye from Callum Roper. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks always uh, for listening and hopefully we get a, a few more bits of good news out of COP26. Yes, we'll also have to do a roundup of week two of COP in the next podcast as well. Uh, it's a goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. And it's a goodbye from Callum Watt. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, hopefully, we do get some good news as well. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, and uh, see you next time, I suppose. And don't forget to join Trade Union. <laughs>